Thank you. The children can go to their activity and the rest of us will be here. I don't know whether you want to open the doors so that there's air flowing through this place. Because you could fall asleep as I start talking, which would be hard to understand. We're sort of uh, winding our way through Ephesians. Paul's great letter that he's written when he was in jail to the church. And he's trying to put in words things that are so hard to describe. What does it mean? What's the point of uh, Jesus going to the cross and rising again? And what's so amazing about Jesus? Um, So much of our mindsets are uh, really that heaven happens when we're dead. And as long as we're living, we have to kind of grind our way through life and, and work it out bit by bit. And it's a lot of effort and sweat and tears and then we're not even sure God accepts us and we live under these lies and these burdens and these religious curses. And uh, God came into this world and interestingly, he didn't go into the temple and try and become part of the temple hierarchy, which is actually not a proof text for people to not be part of the church. But he, he just, it was so resistant, he went outside to speak into it. Uh, sometimes that's our lives too. We're so resistant, he can't get in. So he tries to speak through other things, including circumstances sometimes he will use. But Jesus, uh, we have uh, so many things that can help us know who God is. We have the scriptures, we have history, we have personal experience, we have testimonies, we have other people's stories. We have lots of things that can help us make sense of someone who initially is invisible. And if I was uh, saying, what am I going to talk about this morning? It's, it's two words, but now. Because there are always two realities wherever we are. The reality is of what I see and, and sense. And I always remember, um, and, and then there's the, the reality of something what I do, that I don't intuitively catch on to, but is absolutely real. And probably the, one of the most um, graphic pictures that I've ever had of that is going into New York and going to Wall Street. It was many years ago. And going up into the viewing booth over Wall Street where the stock exchange is, and it's absolute chaos. There are, p- there are people throwing papers, they're shouting. You, you, you cannot believe these are grown men at work. Or maybe you can. But it is absolute chaos. And this is the center of the financial world. And then they actually sit you down and you press buttons and you can start seeing different colors and they explain what's going on. And with some explanation, you begin to see order in the chaos but without somebody telling you, you would never know. And the the goal of Jesus for us is that we can become like him. And what that means is that uh, we can become like him, that no matter what goes on in a world which is broken and is struggling and is chaotic. I mean, the one thing that you and I must agree on is that every every country, every situation throughout history, there's, there's one theme that stands above everything, and that is that human beings trying to work out their lives together fail miserably. I mean, we have political heroes today, there are villains tomorrow. I mean, three years, maybe eight years, and then people say, we need a change. And most of our politics is prostitution because so much of the time is spent saying, how can I say things that you want to hear so that I can actually get voted up again? And how can I promise you things that I can't deliver so you'll vote for me and then you can be disappointed afterwards, but at least I've got my pension. I'm not saying they're not good politicians for one minute. I'm merely saying human beings have this ability to mess up systems because greed and self-importance is so often present. If not at the beginning, it comes to. 
And very often people go into things with naive hope and then they actually get wound and ground down by the corruption or by the, the politicking. I remember with the Anglican Church saying, I'm going to make a difference in this church. And for years trying to make a difference. And then standing up in their m- meetings and saying, but what about this? And all you get is professional clergy who know how the system works saying, uh, point of order, uh, we should discuss that in, 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 a, in a committee meeting, special committee. It's called putting things in the parking lot. And all you get is politics that actually sidelines anything that's too controversial. Until eventually you go, what's the point? The, su- the system is so big and so cumbersome. And many of us get disillusioned. I mean, I know teachers do. I know, you know medical people do. Pretty much every institutional group gets disheartened and disabilitated by the ability and the capacity of human beings to exploit each other, to not want change, to take the easy route, right? Probably everybody here has that experience. And so there's one thing that you kind of go, so why do we keep believing in it? I'm not. Sa- we have to participate in it. Paul said, if you're a slave, then be a great slave. Be the best slave there is. You might campaign for the end of slavery, but while you're campaigning for the end of slavery, be the best slave that, that's ever been. Don't wait until your condition has changed before you become somebody who shines for Jesus. That's a cop-out. The the biggest thing the world wants to see is salt and light, and light and salt are most effective in places where there is no light and salt. What's the point if the light complains about the darkness? The response might be, you shine pretty bright in the darkness. That's why you're here. And so Paul is trying to write to people to inspire them, to encourage them, and to go, but now... Everything is different because of Jesus. Everything is different because of Jesus. And if you're like me, I will often listen to that kind of word and say, yeah, it doesn't feel like it. And part of the reason it doesn't feel like that is because I've got sucked into the broken side and I've forgotten what has happened because of Jesus and what has been released to me because of Jesus. Any of you watch Yukon Gold? The, uh, the, 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 the movie thing about them panning for gold up in the, in the north? Um, I mean, they, they move mountains and mountains and mountains of dirt to, 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 to filter out and they come up with this gold. And they go, ah, there's gold here. They move mountains of dirt and that's life. Find the gold and leave the dirt. That's what they're always encouraged to say. We're looking for the gold in one another. But as I say, that we've got to move a lot of dirt. It doesn't just float up to the surface often. Sometimes we don't even know the gold we carry. And so we have to go through mining. We have to go through washing. We have to go through shaking. We have to go through stuff so the, sol- the gold begins to surface. And then when you see the gold, you forget about all the dirt. Isn't that inspiring? So in Ephesians 2, I mean, last week we talk- talked about, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. How many of you feel alive? <laughs> One, two, three, four. Uh, some of you are so dead you don't even know what that means, right? I mean, one of the most frustrating things about Christianity is when someone like me says, how do you feel alive? And you just had an argument with your spouse on the way here and you're just like tolerating me. And you, I have the audacity to say, are you alive? And you go, well, if I was more alive, I'd probably smack you first. But God is actually wanting us to know a reality that transcends the irritation I might bring into your life or you might bring, believe it or not. Uh, 
how is it for us to be alive in the midst of life that isn't always alive? <laughs> and the only way you're going to find that, and I'm going to find that life, is to have access to something that is beyond the circumstances in which I live. And that's when you begin to say, my life is in what abides in me because of who I know and how he makes me come alive. And that's not hanging on you. Although you and I impact each other where we can discourage stuff and all the rest, but maturity is learning to grow to the point where we are interdependent, but our life is not quenched by challenges around us. It's always going to be a challenge. And so Paul says you were made alive and he was the one who was sitting in jail reading, um, writing and testifying to, and I say this every week, I'm in chains but I'm free. Circumstantially I'm trained in chains but you know what? I'm in chains because of my testimony to Jesus and that makes me come alive. Because this Roman Roman stuff, they think they rule the world. And actually they do in this part of the world. But I have news for for Jake who's got me tied up to him. I'm saying to him, I am freer than you are. You are actually submitting to all kinds of stuff and you have to be here and I'm free. And he says, shut up or I'll kill you. And he says, that's cool because then I'll go home. What do I do with somebody who will not shut up? Because he's not afraid. Although Paul actually, to be honest, says at times I was afraid to the point of death. And the reason I always put that kind of rider in is because these guys didn't live in a fanciful world that was all easy. It was hard. It was hard. But God, and but now, was their reality. But God is greater. God rescued us. You are God's handiwork created for good works. I mean, this, this, I just want to repeat this again and again and again. It was so profound for me. It is so profound for me that you were dead. How do you think a, a corpse sort of deals with performance anxiety? or wealth, or status, or education. You were dead. You can be very rich and dead. You can be very poor and dead. You can be very educated and dead. Dead is dead. When God, in his love, takes you from death to life, who gets the glory and the credit? Well, I was just a beautiful corpse, irresistible to the Father, and he raised me to life as he should. No, you're dead. And he raises you to life. Not one person here is worthy of the love of God. Not one person here, because of, our, because of our deeds, because of our behavior, because of our attitude. Not one of us deserves the love of God. Other than, I mean, why do children deserve your love? They don't. I mean, you don't love my children very much. I'm going to see them next few weeks' time in London for Father's Day. They have a lot of money to go and spend three weekends with them. Realize how it's expensive it is to love them. Because I never had a father who visited me. I was in Oxford for three years and my father never visited me. I'm not trying to get pity because I'm beyond that. I'm merely saying that I know what it's like to anticipate the visit of a father. And I want them to have a father who visits just because they are there, not because I'm on my way somewhere else. They don't have to earn my love. I mean, there's nothing that would cause me to say, I withdraw my love from you. You're just a real disappointment. But we believe that's true for God. And he says, if you who are evil know how to love your children, what do you think I think about you? 
Many of us don't know how to receive love from God the Father beyond an intellectual assent or maybe a little bit emotionally, but generally speaking, there's still lots that's untapped in terms of his love for us, his kindness to us, his faithfulness, his favor upon us. I mean, my daughters in their worst moments, and they've had some moments, it's not even questionable. The thing that's most delightful about them when they've messed up is that they're willing to talk to me. That's the blessing. It's not hard for me to forgive because in the bigger perspective, they've been stupid. I know that and they know that. And that's how God wants to engage with us. Every single one of us. There's so much more. And you see, it's true that the way you think about God is the way you walk with Him. If you think He's angry, if you think He's irrelevant, if you think He's fill in the blank, then that's how you will respond to Him. Most of us will respond to him by we give him, we, we hedge our bets and we give him so much. But if I commit completely, he's going to wreck my life. If I commit completely, I'm going to get suckered into a whole lot of stuff I don't want to do and I'm going to become like him or her. We have all this baggage. Paul says this, um, where does he say? let me start reading from, so I stay on track here. Remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, what is he, he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, but he's actually talking about universal problems with divisions. When the Gentiles went into the temple, they could hardly get into the court. I mean, there was an outer court, but there were notices up saying, if you come in beyond this, you will be killed. You have to be Jewish. You're not one of us. And we have, and we surround ourselves with the, at the very center of the Holy of Holies where God meets us and he forgives our sins by our sacrifices. Tough to be you. Now, don't feel sorry for the Greeks because a few centuries before this, the Greeks went around saying everybody's a barbarian except a Greek. They were very proud of their philosophy and their, menta- you know, their mental abilities and all the rest of it. And human beings everywhere do this all the time. It's astounding that people from Israel, and I'm, I love people from Israel, I'm not getting anti-Jewish, so don't misunderstand me, but you go to Jerusalem and you go into Israel and then you go into, which I have done, go into the, the camps where the Palestinians live and you hear about the Palestinians had supper with one of them. Who they, they've been there since the 1800s. And they said, we used to actually get on with the Jews. We all lived together and then they all came and started interfering and now we're all fighting each other. But the ability for human beings to start dicing out who's worthy and who's not and who's one of us and who's not, that's what Paul's talking about. He says, you were Gentiles and you were Jews. And Paul knows what he's talking about because he was one of them. He was passionately prejudiced, as was Peter. Peter got worked out a bit later in Acts in, uh, with Cornelius. What's God saying He's saying, everyone is my favorite. The reason you're Greek and the reason you're Jewish and the reason that you're black and the reason you're white or you're yellow and the reason that you live in America or South America or whatever, he says, it's just because variety is nice. I kind of like black and white and yellow and green and whatever. But what's happened in this world is that Satan has taken everything that has been creatively different and said that has become your value and now it's become your identity, and now you exclude some people and you accept other people depending on how they fit in your paradigm and your culture. So anything that smacks of prejudice, anything that smacks of discrimination in God's arena is wrong. 
And I would even be as provocative as to say all this immigration that's going on right now all over the world, including America. It's about human beings struggling to work out how to live. And what we do is we come in and we populate a land, but somebody else suffers. We know that in this, every country is like this. And once we've staked our part and we've got our three acres, then we go, nobody else can come in. Now that I've got what I want, nobody else should come in. And it's just disunity. Ephesians is about a God who brings unity into a place of disunity. How does he do it? He breaks down the wall of division. He breaks down the temple. He destroys the false, the false realities. And he says, take one Greek, take one Jew, mix them with Jesus, you have a new humanity. Now you have a Christian Jew and a Christian Greek and their Christian makes them one. I make you one. So you can keep your Jewishness and you keep, can keep your Greekness and you can keep your Canadianism, but with Jesus you all become one. Jesus is what brings us together. And that's what Paul was ultimately saying in this. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law for its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. No favorites. Everybody's welcome. And nobody can jump over the fence. You come to the cross through Jesus. All are sinners. All have failed. All need forgiveness. All need his blood shed. And then all get to enter into the promised land. All are filled with his spirit. He likes everyone. And he wants to be present for everyone on earth as in heaven. That's the good news. How do people experience the good news? People experience the good news when people who are filled with Jesus start treating them as if they were brothers and sisters before they know it. I don't treat, I don't treat you by your ethnicity. I don't treat you by your gender. I don't treat you by anything that defines you on earth. I treat you by what God says you are and that you are a much-loved son and you are a much-loved daughter wherever you are, whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever you do. Then people will come to know Jesus and the churches will be full. When Christians stop pointing out all the faults of everybody who's not a Christian as if they have no faults, when Christians stop taking the easy way of learning a little bit about God, making their peace with Jesus, and then using that to live the rest of their lives in immaturity, in diapers, but having the audacity to speak out about all kinds of things in the name of God with no love in their spirit and no sacrifice in them. When God broke down the wall, it cost him his life. And he said, I've done this because you guys need to learn how to live in another way. And you cannot do it without my spirit. Because without my spirit, you keep on seeing the differences. You keep on using those as value sticks and they're not. They're just different. How much of your time is spent being angry with people because they're not what you want them to be? And how's it working for you? How much of your time is spent blaming people? Justifying what you do because of what others have done to you. How much, how's that working? How's self-righteousness working? I feel better than somebody else because at least I don't do that. 
Are you having a happy life with that? You having a happy life waiting for people to know how much you need to be noticed and suffering, how much you're suffering? You're having a happy time waiting for people to notice so that they can actually love you like they say they should? How's it working? I guarantee you, you're just getting more bitter and more judgmental and more difficult to live with. You see, the things of Jesus and the things Paul's talking about are very real. We're not asking God's Spirit to come here and fill us, and we're not spending time in worship just to fill up the time. Without God's Spirit, we have nothing. Without opening our hearts to the love of God, we have nothing. You can tell when people have been humbled by the love of Jesus because they love others who aren't perfect more easily. They have compassion, they have empathy. The trouble with these addicts is they should just actually stop doing what they're doing. The trouble with people who, and we just fill in the blanks of w- with all our sort of remedies. Until somebody who knows you say, well, if you're so smart, why are you doing this? Well, that's different. God calls us to be a people with grace, with kindness, with goodness. But now, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You've been brought close. So Jesus has done everything in us to be close to him. He's destroyed the barriers, the dividing walls. He's taken the judgment and the punishment to create one new humanity out of two or three or a thousand, which is Jesus in you makes all the difference. I'm reading a book now that I want to recommend to you. It's by John Wimber's daughter-in-law called Christy Wimber called Transformed. And it's very refreshing because... She's been in leadership for many, many years and she's a woman in leadership so she's had a lot of tough stuff coming her way. And one of the things I'm always contending about is that we're living in this tension in this world of the kingdom present and God's treasure in us. And I just, would, I just want to read a few excerpts. Um, people are dead in so many ways. Many walk around with saved souls but lost lives. Every part of you is meant to shine. Every part of you, body, soul, and spirit, to come to life. For some of you reading this, my story is your story. There are areas in your life where you, you have yet to come to life. Perhaps others of you have boxed, God, have boxed God or know there are places within yourself that are hidden, but you don't know another way. Perhaps some of you live in the sadness of having areas in your life where you've lost hope for change. Others of you may have a nicely ordered life and be productive in it. God may be even using you in in incredible ways, yet you have pockets of frustration which you have put off to the side because you don't expect them to ever change. Whether some of these things, all of these things, or none of these things apply to you, I encourage you to ask God. Personally, I have never once gone before God and received the answer that all is good. As long as we're alive, there is change that needs to happen in each of us. To have areas of our life that need to be transformed doesn't mean we're less powerful or less spiritual. It just means we are human. Some of the most godly, productive people I know have deep areas of brokenness which God continues to work on. Everyone has areas of weakness. It's just a matter of whether or not they're willing to admit it. There have been many times where I've felt the terror of feeling stuck, guilty or overwhelmed, sometimes feeling all of them at once. But we are not left alone without hope. In fact, if you're reading this, it's probably God's moment for you. If you feel trapped, there is always hope for change. If you feel hopeless, you may actually be in just the right place for God to work. You are not crazy. You are human. As humans, we all have broken areas in our lives that only the one who created us can heal. 
Only God can cause life to exist and only God can cause us to shine in the way we were called to shine. It is never a one-shot deal and it is never fully realized this side of heaven. But what I have learned and am still learning is that God always wants us to work towards transformation. And I just want to end with this. The kingdom of God isn't about changing areas of our life so we feel better about ourselves. The kingdom of God is about transforming areas of our life so we can reflect more of who our creator is. This is all part of the journey. The transformation process is to heal our way into wholeness. We have to remind ourselves the destination isn't the point, but rather the loving and healing power of Jesus as we continue to trust in him more and more. You know, the downside of sometimes us always talking about physical healing is that we neglect emotional and physical stuff. And then we neglect the fact that not everybody gets healed and there's all kinds of incompleteness in our life. And there's got to be space and room for all of that. But God, but now. If it's not today, it could be tomorrow. It will be in heaven. But now. And very often the most remarkable faith is the faith that's being worked out when people we love aren't healed, but we still pray for those who are needing to be healed, to be healed. And we just let God be God. Let's watch a video quickly as we wind this down. Um, God's desire is that we actually live close to him in relationship and out of that comes life. So that's, that's called prayer. Where we talk to God day by day so that when the crises come we can actually hear him because they will come. And Paul you know, says in this passage, he says quite a lot, he says, uh, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. I mean, if we were to do a, a survey here about, you know, how's, how's, it, how's it with peace in your life right now? How much anxiety is present here? How much is being medicated? How much is anxiety a real problem? And we had each person come up and talk about what they're anxious about and, and said, how much peace is actually here? How much peace do you have? You go, how much peace do you want? And then how do you think you're going to get peace? What do you think you need to do to have peace? And most of us will say, if I had a bit more money, if my spouse behaved themselves, if my children weren't so rebellious, if this and if that were the other thing, and we, we, we hinge our peace to circumstances and conditions. And most of us are old enough to know that doesn't work for long. We don't get the peace beyond understanding. We get relief. And then we try desperately to control everything because that's how we feel we can get peace. So how many of you are trying to control everything? How's that working? What do you like to live with? Controlling people are awful to live with. I wouldn't know what that's like, but I'm just saying, I've heard, <laughs> have no clue. <laughs> I'm serious. But pe <laughs> Cheryl, peace, peace, peace. <laughs> How many of us want peace? Seriously, seriously. You see what... what what God says and what Paul says and what that video says was peace isn't found in relationship with Jesus. Just as he takes Gentile and Jew and makes them one, he says, when you're present with me, your relationship with me will result in peace and love and joy. If you, ch if you, if you chase after peace, you'll never find it. If you chase after joy, you'll never find it. If you chase after anything in abstract, you will never find it. If you are present with me, Jesus, all of those things will come to be in increasing measure. My peace I give you, not as the world gives, which means that nothing in the world can give us peace. 
All this division and all this anxiety is around the stuff we see and we try to control and make different. And he says, surrender to me, share your life with me as I share my life with you and you will find that you will walk in greater peace. And you will not understand it. You'll say, I normally used to feel like this, but I don't. I'm actually relatively peaceful. And peace is something the world craves. You are no longer foreigners. You are no longer strangers. You are fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household. If I get a... If I, if I, I've got to stop here. If I, if, I get, if I get a lottery ticket and I've just won $25 million, or you do, what's the thing we will go... I never have to worry about my security anymore because I have enough in the bank to keep me safe. Until I get cancer or until somebody gets killed and then no amount of money in the bank helps me, really. Now, I'm very open to God giving me $25 million. I'll risk that. But at the end of the day, our peace has to come from somewhere else because most people in the world don't get millions of dollars. Most people eke out a living. And so there's an element of, God, I want that peace that is beyond a bank balance. And I remember as a child, I used to be very nervous. I had, I had um, eczema in my, on my skin. I struggled to sleep when my parents were out. I was afraid one of them would be killed. And I was very nervous, very anxious child. And I wouldn't recognize that child now. I mean, I get stressed out a little bit, but by and large, I think I live actually with quite a lot of peace in me. My circumstances in terms of longevity of, you know, how things are going to work out, I haven't got a clue. But I trust the body and I trust him. And so, what is, what is? Here's a, here's a, 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 a nice phrase to, to go home with. Because God says you are, that we are being built into his temple. He, I love my children. You love your children. You will do most things you can to, to keep them safe and work things out with them. Well, God does, feels that more about you than you do about your kids. Think of that. Meditate on it. Live from a place that you are adored. He has broken the dividing wall. He has sent his son. You are adored. Everything about receiving from God depends on how I see God. So for 10 years I was angry with God. I got nothing from him really that I was aware of. As soon as my perception changed, everything else changed. As you were talking about, Casey. There's an element of as we begin to find out that God loves us and is jealously, passionately concerned about our welfare, release your life to him. Some of us are controlling our lives to the degree that, well, God, if you're going to speak to me, don't speak through them or them. They're not qualified. Speak through whatever. Give a word of knowledge from an anointed person but they're not that anointed so their word won't be that great. So we have so much control and we just go, surrender. I said that last week, surrender and see what happens. And this is the, the encouraging word. Um, we work with what we have until we get what we want. So a phrase from Christy Wimber. She said, I use this a lot in our church. We work with what we have until we get what we want. Which means we take what God has given us right now and we apply it and as we apply it, he releases. And then what we thought we might become, we become in the process. We don't wait until that fantasy never gets fulfilled. We actually just work with what we have. And there's freedom in that. And there's anointing and power in that. You remember the woman at the well? 
Finishing now. Woman at the well. She comes to Jesus. She, she meets Jesus by accident in the middle of the day because she's already had six husbands. Her life is a mess. She regards her body as a way of staying alive. Men like her. Women don't like her. She is shamed and everything else. And she meets Jesus. And they have a conversation. Jesus says, can you give me some water? Do you know that when he meets you, he's not going to tell you all your sins? He's going to actually say, hey, can you help me with this? He's nice. And he talks to her and then he says something to her and he says, if you only knew who it is that was talking to you. And I just want to encourage us, if you only knew what God is saying to you, Paul says we have access to the Father. Why would it matter? Because the cry of every human being is to have access to a Father. The security of every human being is rooted in who is my Father. Every human heart has a longing for a father. And if you had good relationship with your fathers and they're not alive right now, your longing is that he would be here right now because you remember how it was with him and how you could walk with him and how you could talk with him or whatever. For those of us who didn't have such great fathers, we still long to have that father that we hoped we would have. And Jesus says, I have laid down my life so you, everyone, can have access to a father who says, I love you. That's the invitation. If you only knew 